Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Crunching the numbers, thanks to Hume Tennis and Community Centre, a mini Melbourne park in Melbourne's north, which has tennis for everyone. Perfect for coaches and players if you're coming from interstate to train and compete. Close to Melbourne Airport with accommodation available. Find out more at humetennis.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Crunching the Numbers. This is uh, Stephen Huss. I have Chris Tonts with me as usual and he uh, has just left Wimbledon, but we are going to talk about Wimbledon heavily today and have a look at the statistics that have happened there on the grass so far. Chris, welcome. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your Wimbledon experience to start with? Thanks for having me once again on the show. It was weird because, well, Claire lost a tough one to Serenko, who's She actually third round, she had the longest tiebreak ever. It was like 2018 in the final set against Bogdan. I Claire, your player, lost to Serenko yeah, in the first round. Yep. First round, 6-4 in the third. It was a tough one. So now we're here in Sweden getting ready for, we're going to stay over um, for three more tournaments on clay, which, you know, there's a lot of people that do that. It's either you go home, if you're from the, you know, States, you go home after the French come back for Wimbledon, or you stay over in between French and Wimbledon. We decided to go home after the French and then come back for Wimbledon and stay over here a little bit. Yeah. So at Wimbledon this year, super windy, uh, which makes it tricky. I find it's very tricky to serve in these conditions. So, you know, generally you see lower first serve percentages, more double faults. It makes it tougher. Uh, And then out of nowhere, it was hot for, I think all of qualifying was pretty good. It's slow conditions. And then there was no forecast for rain, but the first uh, Claire played on the first day, it wasn't supposed to rain. It ended up raining. We got, uh, she got stopped. And then the next two days it rained. So they really struggled to get, a lot of the matches in great experience as always though what's the talk around how the grass is playing is it uh it's been slowing down over the last couple of decades and played slower and slower is that still the case or is is is, is there anyone out there who's saying that the, it's playing faster again or is that not happening yeah what's interesting is we went to germany and the grass there is, is much quicker and and then I, I made a comment to claire if you look at the grass now it almost looks like artificial turf it, it looks it's a almost getting to like it's like a not a grass green it's it's a darker green and yeah it's it's much slower but with with the conditions with just depends if it rains or not if it doesn't rain there those courts are you can play from the back no problem i was actually with claire we were doing running drills from the back we were just doing like one and one one cross one line changing I didn't have any problem with the speed of the court. Bounces are so pure these days um, that it's yeah, it's playing yeah. more like a, a faster hard court, isn't it? Yeah, that's a yeah, great observation. But yeah, the grass in England is slower, I think, than the grass in Germany for sure. 
They, they do a great job. So perhaps before we dive into some of the statistics, I just wanted to update the Australians and how they've done at Wimbledon uh, this year. Always keep a very keen eye on them. You probably not as much, but I, I absolutely wanted to ask you before I go into their results, just from a, an American perspective, and I know that you're working with an American and you're not keeping such an eye on the Australians, but from the outside looking in, what's your impression of, of how the Australian pros are doing on the women's and the men's side, if, if you have one? Well, first up, I have to say that, uh, and, and I'm not just saying that, I, I felt like this when I was playing as the Australians are the nicest people. They're the easiest to get along with. First off, Dasha's coming back from an injury. She's dangerous. She's good. So I would just give her time. Storm Hunter, I think, will be, in my opinion, and Claire thinks the same, as she'll be top 100 by the end of the year, you know, depending on her schedule. But she definitely has the skill. Uh, some of the younger ones, like Kadecki, I think she lost last round of qualifying, which was, you know, it was kind of tough. And Priscilla Hahn is another good Australian. She lost second round of qualifying to Stefanini. So, yeah, it wasn't probably the best results um, for Australians who usually do pretty well here. You know, you got some young ones coming up, so we'll have to see. And then as for the men, as you know, like not having curios, he actually came on site. I saw him to see the doctor. He looked pretty disappointed that day, but not having him in the tournament is huge. And then I think Damon R, he had to play Berrettini. He could go pretty deep. So that's a tough second round for him. And I think uh, Chris O'Connell, he, I don't know him very much, but I've been putting together stats for him for this and he made the third round. You know, it'd be nice to have more, but you know, we'll see. We'll see how, if there's any younger ones coming up. I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think obviously there's way more depth in the game and more countries having success. Um, but yeah, from my perspective, I'd love to see bigger numbers and bigger threats, particularly on the grass at Wimbledon. I think Australians have such a affinity for the grass and uh, and, and generally play some on grass growing up um, and yeah. have a really good tradition there. So. Yeah, to have um, to not have any of the girls in the, in the second round, I think, is pretty disappointing. And obviously, Chris O'Connell having a good result making the third round. I think you know both him and Chris Eubanks had a big opportunity playing each other in the third round, and Eubanks was able to pip him in three tie breaks and, and move through to the fourth round. Yeah, and then uh, you know Alex Vukic has made his way up. You know not only into the yes. top 100, but up into the 60s, which I think is fantastic for him. So mm -hmm. he's on the rise. Um, Jason Kubler won a match at Wimbledon, lost in the second round to Nicholas Jerry and had, had quite a few chances. But, you know, he's consolidated um, himself in the top 100 after his awesome run last year to the fourth round. Jordan Thompson, you know, always very, very good results on grass, uh, but ran into Djokovic second round, obviously makes it, it very tough. But yeah, I'd love to see, obviously, Kyrgios is a wild card there. He could do anything at that tournament. Kokonakis, I think, lost in qualities, and he's another guy that I think is more than capable of, of doing some damage in the tournament, although grass is certainly not his favourite surface. But yeah, I, I, I wish that there was a bit more success from the Aussies, but of course I'm biased uh, being Australian. Just wanted to mention also in the juniors, we have two of the girls have already won a round and are through to the second round. Hopefully uh, the juniors can do some damage over there and, and progress and they can come through and perhaps be this next wave of, of Aussies that start to you know challenge and, and get into the second week of Wimbledon because uh, you know, from an Australian perspective, we'd all love to see that. Moving on, you've had a look at a lot of the statistics from Wimbledon up until this point. Let's talk about some of the things that stood out for you first. 
and then perhaps I can put a couple of mentions in there as well. So what stands out to you, Chris, as far as statistically in the in the Wimbledon tournament so far, 2023? Well, I mean, this is kind of off topic, but I, I would like to bring this up is when put when I put together the, the stats for for the players, it seems like if you look at the best players, they're winners to unforced error. It's just incredible. Uh, they are so stingy with making mistakes. And, and it's a good reminder for me as a coach, like, hey, you know, th- there's things we got to clean up. But Djokovic, winners to unforced error, he's plus 26. He's, he's hitting more winners than unforced errors. I mean, he's he's going to be tough to beat if he can keep that up. Alcaraz, he's plus seven for the tournament. Sinner's plus seven. And then if we look at the women's, Iga Swiatek, she's plus 10. And then Sabalenka, minus five. And Rybikina, minus four. But if I compare that to like Claire for the year, she's minus 20. A good reminder, like th- these people are stingy with, with the mistakes they give. It's important to give context around that would you agree that you know you're saying those yeah. people are incredible because they're in the plus right and the plus means they're actually hitting more winners than they're making unforced errors don't you think that if you're somewhere close to zero close to parity even if you're you mentioned Sabalenka and Rybakina who are both very aggressive players minus four yeah. minus five I mean that's pretty impressive in itself right so if you're if you're somewhere around zero I think you're doing incredibly well it's just when you float too far into the minuses um, yeah. that you're just giving up too many areas that you don't need to be um so i just want the listeners and people to understand it's not about never making an error but it's about yeah. staying relatively close to parity which is very difficult to do because you have the huge majority of the draw um, not able to achieve that but that's a great reminder about tennis is still you know what is your base can you hit the ball in and obviously can you hit the ball you know hard and closer to the line and with energy and repeat it i mean there's still a base consistency level that you know, I don't think many people would describe Arena Sabalenka as consistent, but if she's at minus four or five for the tournament so far, I mean, that is pretty consistent, particularly at the velocity that she's hitting the balls. I'm just going to build on that real quick. You, you make a good point because Claire can go out there against these top players and, and just make the ball, but that's not going to get it done. So you got to kind of walk that fine line where you are trying to force mistakes out of your opponent, which means you're going to miss a little bit more, but just clean up in my opinion, some of the first ball mistakes or, or return mistake can make a huge difference. This kind of builds on the next point, which I, I just looked at how close these matches are. If you look at the men that won versus the, the men that lost, the, the difference there is 54%. Whoever wins, they win the 54% of the points to 46 for whoever loses. So it's very close. And the, the women's the same, 55-45. And like with Claire this year, she's had a bunch of three-set losses. It's been kind of tough, but it's if I look at her stats for the year, it's 52% for her opponents and 48 for her, 48% points lost of 52 for her opponents winning. So it was very close, very small margins, I, I would say. Very good reminder for you know parents, coaches, players, that the margins are so small and tennis is not a game of perfect. So people who are winning matches at Wimbledon are winning 54 and 55% of points. They're not winning 80% of points. They're not winning all of the points that they're playing or the huge majority. They're winning just a little bit more than half. And I think, again, I'll go back to if you lose, you know, a match and you've won 70 points and you've lost 78 points, people think that's eight points difference, but it's actually four points difference. So instead of doing a double fault, making two unforced errors and you miss one high volley, you know, that's maybe four points that you could win. If you win four more points, then your opponent wins four less points. And now you're at 74 points each. And now it's a toss up as to who wins the match they're the sort of just small things that you're trying to cut on and and these small differences can make a big difference and nobody out 
out there is perfect because everyone's making errors, but it's just a matter of, okay, do I have to make an error there or can I cut my unforced error or can I make sure of that easy ball? So small things, small increments of improvement often make a, a big yeah. difference. The last thing, and I'd like you to touch on this, and I know probably have some a strong opinion on this, is if you look at Wimbledon, probably people are trying to get to the net a little bit more. They can use the slice and keep it low or, or come in and put the pressure on and have, have them make a pass. So I just wanted to see like for the men and women, the averages of times at net to compared to the total points of the men, men average 15% times at net and the women was 11% times at net. And for the men, the winning percentage when they get to the net is 69%. For the women, it was 66%. So it looks like you know, getting to the net is a, is a winning strategy. However, like getting to the net is a different story. But let's say if we look at Max Cressy, he came to the net more than anyone uh, during the tournament. He came in, I think, of the total points came in 42% of all points in that match in his first round loss. And he won, I believe it was 72% of those points. So he did exceptionally well when he got to the net. And that match was decided by, I believe, tie break. So just a few points. What do you feel about that? Do you think it's being used enough trying to get to the net or could it be used more? Yeah, I think it's a great conversation and discussion. And there's a there's a few sort of rabbit holes we could go down when I answer that question, because the way that that, that is, is tagged or coded can be subjective because what you, know, you and I might consider a net appearance, someone who's coding the match may not, or vice versa. You know, oh, they're moving towards the, the service line, but they hit a winner off the ground stroke. Is that a net appearance? Is it not? So there's a little bit of conjecture around that. And I think the modern game, what's happening almost all the time with net play um, is that people are coming forward when they have advantage. 25 years ago, 20 years ago, people were still coming in in a neutral situation. So they were serve and volleying on a second serve. They were chipping and charging. Slice and come to the net in the rally. Now that's pretty rarely happening. When people are coming forward, they're ahead in the point. So it makes sense that they're winning more than 50% of the point. But I certainly believe that the net is a, is a form of pressure and it needs to be used. Those percentages reflect it. But again, I think they... They may be a little bit skewed with how they're evaluated and because and they're subjective in the way that, that they're tagged or coded. So it's tough to say, but you know, at the end of the day, if you are a, a player who wants to do well at the highest level, if you have volley skill, if you have competence at the net and in your transition game, to me, you can gain an edge on the competition because in general, the level of volleyers in the women's and the men's game now as compared to you know 20 years ago is very different. Uh, it's nowhere near as good. So I think having more skill at the net is going to be a massive advantage where you can get ahead of a lot of the field that you're playing against. You had looked at forehand speed and backhand speed and, and topspin and on the forehand, topspin on the backhand. And one of the things I noticed is that the average for the women on forehand topspin is about 2,100 RPM. So that's revolutions per minute. That's how much the ball's spinning on the forehand. And on the men's, it's 2,600. So the men are, you know, pretty far ahead. But to me, for the women to be up at 2,100 now, above 2,000 repetitions, sorry, revolutions per minute, I think that shows that the women are starting to hit forehands with more topspin. I think the grips on the women's side are changing in the modern game and getting many more into semi-Western and Western. Again, in the previous generations, it was closer to to an eastern forehand more often. Um, so I think the women's grips are changing. I think they're imparting more topspin. I think they're using forehands in the middle more. And the fact that, you know, their average speed now on the forehand is 
is 68 miles per hour and are at 72. To me, that's sort of getting closer. And then if you look at the backhand side, just to give that stat as well, the speed on the backhand side is 64 for the men and it's 63 for the women. Now, that might be slightly uh, clouded by the fact that the men are probably slicing more, which slows the speed down. But I am impressed that the women are around 2,100 RPMs on forehand and that they're within four miles an hour on forehand ground strokes. So that's just sort of a trend I'll keep an eye on uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm pretty impressed. And I think the women are improving with their, with their topspin and use of the forehand from the middle of the court. In kilometers an hour, I actually did the conversion. The men are six kilometers an hour more on the forehand and just one on the backhand. So yeah, the, that gap is closing. The, the gap with the serve is still the same though. Still a big difference with the serve. And that's that's about it. They're playing the same game for the most part, in my opinion. Yeah, no, good point. Yeah, yeah except the serve where the, the gaps are still pretty large as far as speed goes. Let's try to get into some picks and see. So why don't you lead us off? <laughs> I think on the women's side... I know that the world number one by a long way, Igor Sriontek, is on the top half, but I actually think the winner's going to come from the bottom half. I still think the grass may may get her, so I'm pretty impressed from the bottom half. I think Kvitova, who's won Wimbledon twice, is looking very dangerous. She won Berlin in the lead-up. Um, she loves the grass. Lefty, very difficult to play against. Sabalenka all the way at the bottom after having you know won the Australian Open. I think she's a big threat, and I think my dark horse in the bottom is Madison Keys, who obviously won a grass court lead up and I think both you and I have said and agree that she has the capability and the game you know to win a slam at some point and perhaps her form leading into this tournament and her form in this tournament is as good as we've seen so I think that she's as big a chance as she's ever been so yeah bottom half Kvitova Keys and Sabalenka and I like Pegula to make the semi against um, Sviontek in the top half and not sure who's going to win it, but I'm saying the winner comes from the bottom half there. Your thoughts? I got to watch Iga play in Bad Humburg and Wimbledon. She's not coming to the net. She's playing it just like a hard court. She's just going with a kick serve. She's not going with a slice uh, second serve. I, I would go with Pagula. But she's playing well. Yeah, I'm going to go with Pagula. And the bottom half is very difficult. Got to go with Rybakina or Sabalenka. I'm going to go with Rybakina to win it. All right, the men. Uh, I'm going to be very boring in my pick and very obvious. Are, are I think I am too. Silly not? <laughs> Nothing silly. I, I just can't see Djokovic losing. He's unreal in tie breaks. A guy just doesn't make mistakes. Hasn't lost a set. I think everyone else pretty much has. But Berrettini in the upper half, he could sneak through there. Yeah, I, I don't think Alcaraz is going to make the final. I, I know I'm going out on a limb there. But yeah, I'm going to go with Medvedev or Berrettini for the upper half. And the bottom half, I'm just going to go straight Djokovic. I, I just can't see anyone beating him. Djokovic looks un, unbeatable to me. Uh, my hope is that the Greek Sissipas comes through. I really like the fact that he has a bit more variety in his game. Um, the fact that he likes coming to the net, but I don't think anyone's uh, stopping Djokovic. And and perhaps just to finish with, I think you mentioned Djokovic and tie breaks, and we're talking about statistics. And the one that came out of the French Open, he played 57 points in tie breaks at the French Open. 
and he didn't make one single unforced error. 42 out of those 57 points that he played in tie breaks, didn't drop a tie break and didn't make one unforced error. So talk about a guy that not only knows exactly what he's doing in tie breaks, he has the skill to execute it. Uh, he has the concentration and the focus to do it. And so whenever it comes to a tie break, you know, people have a look, see if he's making any errors. And if anyone's going to beat him, they are going to have to take it off him because he isn't going to give it to him. Yeah, massive stat there to finish with. That is a good one. Now I guess we'll look stupid when this comes out. That's yeah. what happens when you make predictions, but that's okay. Uh, I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Chris, I uh, appreciate your work on this, bud. You're uh, you're at yeah. Wimbledon. You put together a bunch of these. Appreciate the insight from um, inside, and we wish Claire all the best in these upcoming uh, tournaments, and we'll absolutely keep an eye on, uh, on Wimbledon. Thanks for being here. That'll do us for another episode of Crunching the Numbers. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Stephen. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel.